Hare Krishna, welcome to our Sunday Bhagavatam class, May 23rd in Oxford, Ohio. Uh, sorry, can't get the bed out of the picture. <laughs> it's a hotel room. And uh, this is just where the desk is. So today we have a class with a in which the purport is something which will <clears throat> might be controversial to many people nowadays. So I'm going to read Prabhupada's purport and then we'll discuss that. So first the verse. This is 1.11.19. Bhagavatam 1.11.19. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So the verse, Vardamukyascha Shatasho Jnanaistaddarshanutsukha Lasat Kundala Nirvata Kapola Vadanasya. So, um, let's read Prabhupada's translation and purport. So Krishna is just entering Dwarka. At the same time, many hundreds of well-known prostitutes began to proceed on various vehicles. They were all very eager to meet the Lord, and their beautiful faces were decorated with dazzling earrings, which enhanced the beauty of their foreheads. So here's Prabhupada's purport. We may not hate even the prostitutes if they are devotees of the Lord. Even to date, there are many prostitutes in great cities of India who are sincere devotees of the Lord. By tricks of chance, one may be obliged to adopt a profession which is not very adorable in society, but that does not hamper one in executing devotional service to the Lord. Devotional service to the Lord is uncheckable in all circumstances. It is understood herewith that even in those days, about 5,000 years ago, there were prostitutes in a city like Dwarka where Lord Krishna resided. This means that prostitutes are necessary citizens for the proper upkeep of society. The government opens wine shops, but this does not mean that a government that the government encourages the drinking of wine. The idea is that there is a class of men who will drink at any cost. And it has been experienced that prohibition in great cities encouraged illicit smuggling of wine. Similarly, men who are not satisfied at home require such concessions, and if there is no prostitute, then such low men will induce others into prostitution. It is better that prostitutes be available in the marketplace so that the sanctity of society can be maintained. It is better to maintain a class of prostitutes than to encourage prostitutes within society. The real information is to enlighten all people to become devotees of the Lord and that will check all kinds of deteriorating factors of life. Sri Bilva Mangal Thakur, a great Acharya, of the Vishnu Swami Vaishnava sect in his householder life was overly attached to a prostitute who happened to be a devotee of the Lord. One night when the Thakur came to Chintamani's house in torrents of rain and thunder, Chintamani was astonished so she told him, you know, if you had this much devotion for Krishna, he took all these dangers 
and then she became his guru. And then in the Bhagavad Gita, the Lord says even the low-born people can't approach him. It appears that the prostitutes of Dwarka, who were so eager to meet the Lord, were all his unalloyed devotees, and thus they were all on the path of salvation. Therefore, the only reformation that is necessary in society is to make an organized effort to turn the citizens into devotees of the Lord, and thus all good qualities of the denizens of heaven will overtake them in their own way. On the other hand, those who are non-devotees have no good qualifications whatsoever, however they may be materially advanced. The difference is that devotees of the Lord are on the path of liberation, whereas the non-devotees are on the path of further entanglement in material bondage. The criterion of advancement of civilization is whether the people are educated and advanced on the path of salvation. So there's a lot to talk about here. And uh, I would like to put this within a framework as follows. our, our discussion of these of this of the verse and the purport. We live in an age in which uh, many people, not all, but many people are, I think the correct word is obsessed with individual rights. And uh, let's get a, def- a definition for the word obsessed. Uh, that means we pre- preoccupied, have the mind preoccupied or filled continually, intrusively into a troubling extent. So that you can't think of anything else. But there is something else to think of, and that is societal rights. Basically, Prabhupada is giving in his purport a sociological argument so that let's just uh, just check here. Uh, I'm going to see how many times Prabhupada uses the word society. Seven times here in the purport, he says, society, 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 society. So Prabhupada uh, mentions the word society uh, actually six, actually five times. Two of them are in a note. So Prabhupada mentions the word society five times in his purport. He's clearly giving a sociological argument. Now, society clearly has rights, just as individuals have rights, and there has to be a balance between the two. Uh, At the present time in the West, there is not a balance, clearly. And I would say some countries in the world, not all, but some countries that have more of a balance Uh, Americans tend to find those societies to be oppressive. I mean, some societies really are oppressive. I'm not denying that for a moment. But I think it has gone to an exaggerated extent, certainly in America and in certain other places. Because, so why does society have rights? Well, why does the individual have rights? It's, um, we live in such an ignorant unthinking age that everyone, not everyone, that's hyperbole, so many people just go on talking about their rights, but they never actually explain why they have rights or how they have rights. Now, the Declaration of Independence, there is a statement that 
we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are endowed by their creator with certain rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That means you have a right not to be unfairly killed. You have a right to life, a right to liberty. But of course, liberty has its limits. There are certain things you can't do. Liberty doesn't mean you can kill other people, steal from them. It doesn't mean there are a lot of things you can't do, even if you are a free citizen. And then the pursuit of happiness, of course, again, obviously, everyone understood at the time this was written that that's limited. You cannot pursue happiness, for example, by raping another person or stealing from them. So in a sense, even if we say that we have a right to life and liberty or the pursuit of happiness, because everyone knows there are certain limitations on those rights, then the question arises, what are the reasonable limitations? And uh, then, of course, in a sense, simply saying we have rights, but we have to admit there are limitations on our rights, so the whole discussion is open again. So how do we determine what should be the proper limitations on our rights? One important way is society's rights. For example, let's say you own a piece of land or a house. And let's say on your land, you burn toxic materials and that creates fumes, that creates smoke that is poisoning your neighbors. Now, clearly you can't do that because society has the right and society is other people not to be poisoned by what you're doing. So an individual's rights, an individual does not have a right to do something which is seriously harmful to society. So if, for example, so, so therefore, uh, and society has these rights for obvious reasons, because without society, you wouldn't be alive right now. Without society, you couldn't understand what I'm saying. You wouldn't have a language. Uh, we're all taking advantage, advantage of the protection, uh, the medicine, the fact that people bring food to the marketplace. I mean, we are completely dependent on society. And so in some societies, uh, it is considered that your first duty is to society, not to yourself. And of course that can go to the other extreme also in which you could, so to speak, betray yourself or not be true to yourself. But then again, we wouldn't want a serial killer to be true to himself or herself. Almost all serial killers are men. So that's not sexism. Anyway, um, so going back to Prabhupada's purport, Prabhupada in his purport uses the word society five times. So clearly Prabhupada is arguing basically that <coughs> having some prostitutes is better for society. So that's what has to be examined. Is that a true argument? Is it actually better for society? And uh, what about women? Should there be male prostitutes for women? Is that better for society? 
So um, I think it's a good exercise, as Prabhupada himself says, that we try to understand these things rationally, intelligently, because undoubtedly intelligent people will ask us about these things and we should be prepared to answer intelligently. So first of all, let's look at the verse itself. And then I want to look at the commentaries of other acharyas to see what they say about this verse. Uh, the Sanskrit is, if you have it in front of you, Varamukyascha Shatasho. So Varamukya is by the hundreds. Shatasho means by hundreds. And Varamukya, we'll talk about what that word means. Prabhupada translates it well-known prostitutes. Yanais with vehicles, Taddarshanotsuka. Uh, they were Utsuka. They were very excited, very anxious to see for the darshan, Tad of Krishna. And uh, they were beautiful, the last word in the verse, Shriya, their faces, they had facial beauty because Lasat Kundala, their shining earrings, Nirvata made brilliant, Kapola, their foreheads and, and, and their faces. So they're very beautiful faces, the shining earrings and, and their foreheads were all brilliant, their faces. So these Varamukyas by the hundreds with vehicles, uh, were eager to see Krishna. Now, let's start with Sridhar Swami. First of all, the word varamukya, uh, which could mean different things, uh, can be masculine or feminine, which is interesting. So Sridhar Swami uh, begins by defining the word as a masculine word. It is the it is the men who are going forth. And in fact, in the Sanskrit dictionary, varamukya, varamukyaha, as we have it in this verse, is the plural. It's the plural nominative. That means it's the subject of the sentence and it is in the plural, varamukyaha. So the word varamukya can be a masculine word. It can refer to men. And that's how Sri Arasami takes it in the first instance, and then also referring to women. So varamukya as a masculine noun means, according to Sri Arasami, natadaya. Uh, it means uh, men who are actors, dancers, uh, singers, in other words, entertainers, male entertainers. And of course, the word varamukya in the Sanskrit dictionary, it means that, uh, well, it can mean many things, but um, it can also, vara, vara means excellent, and varamukya can mean just someone who's very beautiful, who has a varamukya, beautiful face. So it can be male actors, singers, dancers, entertainers, male entertainers of all types. Pratyu, Jagmul, and they, they came forward. So now, as a, if it refers to women, interestingly, and it can refer to both, we can take it as referring to both, then um, first of all, Siddhar Swami says it means nartakya, which means for women, again, entertainers, uh, dancers, singers, so, and vaishya may also refer to courtesans. A courtesan uh, uh, also trans can mean a prostitute, but a courtesan specifically, is related to the word court, like a royal court. And the word courtesan can mean uh, 
let's say someone who is in a royal court and Yadu's, I mean, Dwarka certainly was a place of royal warriors. And uh, so it, so as a probably says well-known prostitutes, but a courtesan means someone who's in a court. So it can mean entertainer, male or female. And, or as a prostitute, it means not someone, let's say on the street, but it tends to mean uh, someone who's in a court. So therefore, uh, it means a lot more than just prostitute. It may mean other things as well. Uh, Viraragava Acharya, in his commentary in the Bhagavatam, he's uh, in the uh, Ramanuja Sampradaya, uh, takes the word Varamukya to also refer to men and women, not just and Vijaya Dwajatirtha in the Madhva Sampradaya says Varamukyaha Nartakishu Garitasu Sheshta, which means the best of Nartakis, which means women entertainers, not prostitutes. And also Ganitasu, uh, and also it may refer to actual courtesans actual courtesans or simply female entertainers which would explain why they were so beautiful and so on so that's the first thing it doesn't necessarily mean prostitutes in fact most of the meanings are not prostitutes but apart from that Prabhupada does translate it as prostitutes and then he basically his purport is all is his purport is just a sociological argument justifying uh, the existence of female prostitutes. So I, I was thinking about that, and here are some of my thoughts. Um, well, may I bring in a scientific thing? Is it that, you know, we always hear that women are more lusty, but here's a quote I found uh, online. Uh, recent research shows that women experience libido, that means sex desire, that women experience libido as an urge far less compelling uh, than men. In a landmark study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1999, for example, University of Chicago sociologist Edward O. Lauman revealed his findings that 30% of women have low or no libido. They have low or no sex desire. This sexual desire difference is one of the most frequent causes for women and couples to seek sex therapy. So one of the main reasons for men and women seeking is because the women, 30% of women, this is one of the main causes, have very low sex desire or no sex desire. Very interesting. So... Um, the idea of, let's say, Prabhupada justifies prostitution for men, but of course some women are sexually frustrated, should there be male prostitutes for them? and Or were there male prostitutes? The Shastra doesn't, Shastra doesn't say there were not, it doesn't talk about them, but for example, first of all, let, let's take the female prostitutes. Um,
what is it good for society that there be female prostitutes? If we say, what would the world, what would society be like? What would happen to society if there were no female prostitutes? And what is society like with female prostitutes? And which is better? Not for the, we're not talking about individuals here. We're saying what is better for society? And you could even say what is better for individuals? Um, this actually, there's a related topic, which is not directly on the topic, but it's, it, it, it's sort of related in terms of gender roles, and that is uh, polygamy. Polygamy. Uh, what we find in the Bhagavatam that almost all the polygamy we find is among Kshatriyas. We hear about kings having many wives, and of course, uh, the argument that Shantanu gives in the Mahabharata is that uh, princes don't often don't live very long. They die a lot. There's a high, there's a very high rate of death for princes because they're fighting all the time. So a king wanted to have many wives so he could have so many princes that some of them would survive because if they didn't survive, that would create political chaos and be very bad for society. Uh, also, for example, it's not that everyone that fights in a battle in the Shastra is a Kshatriya. For example, Kurukshetra, there were uh, several million uh, military personnel, and they were certainly not all Kshatriyas. Kshatriyas are princes and kings, and regular soldiers are not necessarily Kshatriyas. But still, some of them are, and they die a lot. And, uh, you know, studies show that women are not at all inclined toward violence as much as men. Some women are, definitely. But by percentages, men are much more inclined to be violent. Almost all, a very, very strong majority of people in prison for violent crimes are men, not women. Almost all men. So they die a lot. And... Uh, they die a lot, and so therefore, another question would be for women, is it better to have, let's say, a significant number of women that do not marry, or is it better to have polygamy in a society in which men die much more frequently than women? And therefore, there'll be a lot of women who cannot find a, an appropriate monogamous marriage. So I'm not going to attempt to answer all these questions here. Uh, I think a lot of scientific research has to be done. But clearly, uh, clearly, this kind of reasoning and prioritizing the good of society is not something that people do nowadays, at least not in the West. It's all about individual rights, which is actually itself a gross injustice. Because why would, for example, I'm born into the world and I have so many debts to society, so many debts. I mean, I owe my life to society in so many ways. And so to say that all I care about is my individual personal rights seems to be to be incredibly selfish and ignorant. And so, but this kind of fair, reasonable discussion hardly goes on in the modern world. But that's the kind of discussion. If we want to come to a reasonable answer, 
those are the kinds of questions we have to ask and, and those are the kinds of topics we need to discuss. Is it necessarily bad or evil to give great importance to society's rights or to consider what is best for society? And that gets into, for example, are, pe are people basically members of teams or autonomous individuals? Where are, you know, and uh, anyway, so th those are a lot of the questions that need to be asked. So we, we read a purport like that of Prabhupada and of course, um, the Bhagavatam or the Shastras does not say that there were not male prostitutes. I don't know. They're not mentioned. It's um, because what about a woman? Now, many women do not have strong sex desire. Many women do. And so what about a respectable woman whose husband was killed in battle? Uh, what does she do if she has to? I mean, of course, you could say self-control. But if you look at the Vedic strategy overall, it's meant to try to meet people where they're at and give them a plan for their life, which does not involve, uh, let's say, developing psychopathology, just sort of going crazy out of, because society is, is forcing you to do this or that. One example is that we find that kings hunt. Obviously, hunting is not good, and kings always, many kings destroy their lives, and hunting accidents, such as Dasharatha, Pandu, uh, Parikshit, who all died because of hunting accidents. So clearly there's a strong encouragement not to hunt or discouraging of hunting, and yet it's not illegal because of people who do it anyway. And if you force people or if you make a law which no one will follow, uh, then you begin to weaken society because respect for law is weakened and then people start disobeying all kinds of laws and that ruins society. So there are all kinds of legal, psychological, sociological principles here and history. We have to study history. So before we self-righteously get all upset about some of the statements here, uh, there's a lot of serious study and thinking and discussion that needs to go on. And I think I will limit myself in this class uh, just to that remark. Uh, nowadays, of course, people don't do that. Nowadays, people just, you know, speak first. And I can't say think later because they, most people never actually think. But um, we live in a very ignorant, foolish age in which people very narcissistically think that no one was ever as great as we are. It's, uh, the world's become a very easy place to become detached from. That's all I can say. It's a, I call it the Teflon planet because, you know, you can't stick to it. You can't become attached. I mean, it's almost inconceivable to me that someone could really be attached. Like I want to stay in on this planet. But anyway, that's my perception. So, um, so I think I will end here. Now, if you have any questions, uh, but that's what I wanted to bring out that these are very serious sociological, psychological, historical issues that deserve far more than just some cheap, well, what's that? Well, I don't understand why, you know, you have to, uh, you actually have to have a brain and use it and carefully think about these things. 
So uh, let's see if there are any comments or questions. Thank you all for being here. You all know the drill, I guess, to put the question marks. And oh, we got a lot of Mexican flags there. Hello to everybody in Mexico. Um, don't see any questions yet. So I'm gonna get a day off. Oh, here's a question. Uh, in the purport, Prabhupada says, on the other hand, those who are non-devotees have no good qualifications whatsoever. Uh, I would say that there's a sense in which it's true, but there's a very powerful sense in which it's not true. I mean, Prabhupada sometimes states categorically something which is true in a particular context. And the actual Sanskrit verse that Prabhupada is referring to doesn't really necessarily say that. The Sanskrit verse, which maybe I'll put on in the chat so you can all see it. Now I just have to figure out how to use chat. I'm not even sure how I put things in chat. Uh, sorry about that. I uh, hope I didn't just knock everyone off. Oh, here's coming. Okay, so there is a question here. How can a prostitute be a pure devotee of Sri Krishna? Uh, it's a good question. I thought about that myself. Um, I would say trying to be very practical here that we all have experience or we should have experience that um, there are very sincere souls, very good devotees who, um, who struggle with the principles. I mean, I've met many people like that. And I've met some people who strictly follow the principles and they're the last people in the world I would ever want to associate with, just to be honest. So, um, Probably talk the tricks of chance. Some people, it's just it's 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 real world stuff. There are people who struggle with the principles or can't follow the principles, but we know that they really love Krishna. It doesn't mean that this is not a green light for everybody to go out and break the principles as long as you love Krishna. But it's um it's just something that happens, and there are people who strictly follow the principles that are not nice people. So it's um just seems to be the way the world is. As far as saying they were pure devotees, uh, they had love for Krishna. It could be they just found themselves, you know, because in India, if you look at India back in those days, um, everything was very, very, very much hereditary. Even though people, you know, in theory had the right, and some people actually didn't practice to change their varna, but it didn't happen very much. And so someone, let's say a woman or a girl could be born into a situation where her 
family, you know, the women have been prostitutes for many generations. And, you know, it sounds pretty awful, but that's the way the real world is. And so it doesn't mean the ideal world or world the way we want it to be. So we can think of different situations. And uh, again, also these were courtesans. These weren't, the word varamukya does not refer to women that stand on a street, you know, looking for men who will pay them for sex. That's not what varamukya means. A courtesan means someone who was almost, you could say, respectable, that lived that had culture and that associated with sort of upper-class men, which is another unfortunate thing, upper-class men who wants that. But I mean, imagine, for example, a man whose wife is in the 30% having very low or no sex desire, or a man whose woman, whose wife died, or who is sick. I mean, Jitarastra, for example, uh, when Gandhari was indisposed, that's when he had a relationship and produced uh, a son. So it's, um, I think it was a son and daughter, but so it's, we see also in ISKCON that uh, we see people who are uh, good devoted. One second, my computer is about to run out of, to make sure it's plugged in here. Uh, okay, now it's plugged. Oops, now it's not. And now it is. So, funny wall plug. So, um, I'm going to go on some of the, I mean, it's a very good question, and I'm going to look at some of the other questions, and maybe I'll come back to that. I mean, I don't think I explained everything in response to that question. There's a lot to say on it. Is Bilha Mongol same as Leela Suka? Can you give some colors, some color on Leela Suka? Some poetic examples? Probably not. Uh, I just know what everyone knows. He was a serious devotee, but he fell down, just like a Jamila. I would compare him to a Jamila. And Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that, um, that even if someone takes up abominable behavior, a very bad behavior, if they come back to me, then they're considered saintly. So there are examples of people who are very good devotees who fell down into bad behavior and then returned to Krishna. So, uh, whoops. Since after Sri Krishna definitively departed from Dwarka, this city sank into the sea. Interesting. Could it be considered that Dwarka is also an allegory to refer to our material body. Um, yes, if you don't think that allegory means it's not real history. I mean, that's why history is so enlightening because if an intelligent person reads history, you find so many um, lessons that can be applied in other areas of life. So that is one of the great values of history is that it also can create so many or, or, or it reveals to us so many lessons that can be applied in so many walks of life. So uh, I would say, yes, it can be an allegory, definitely, but, and it's also history. Oh, also, 
It's also in Spanish, very good, very bilingual. So, so at the end, what it count, what counts is what is in your heart. Yes, but some people take advantage of that and they do bad things and say, well, my heart is in the right place. So that, no, that, that you don't get credit for that. Therefore, that, that's called sin to, uh, to commit offense on the strength of chanting. So how can a prostitute be a pure devotee? Oh, yeah, we, I spoke about that. And uh, I think I mentioned that there's a lot. That's something which, that's a question that deserves a lot of thinking. Does the suffering of living beings motivate Sri Krishna to descend to this planet? Yes. Another bilingual question. Sutapada, Sri Krishna. When Prabhupada, in a conversation in New Zealand, said, so don't spoil the movement by manufacturing ideas, don't do that. Go on in the standard way, keep yourself pure, then movement is sure to be successful. But if you want to spoil it by whimsical, then what can be done? It will be spoiled. And I wanted to know, what did Sita Prabhupada mean? What is not to be changed so we don't spoil the movement? Uh, I've explained many times there are three things in my view, the Prabhupada did not want us to change. Number one, our philosophy. So, for example, when Prabhupada talks in his purport about the necessity of prostitution, that's not, quote-unquote, our philosophy. Prabhupada is sort of, Prabhupada is giving a sociological argument or justification, which is not given in Shastra, but which makes a lot, you know, which some people will see makes a lot of sense. So, uh, our actual philosophy we can't change, and uh, the spiritual practice Prabhupada gave us. Someone can say, well, instead of chanting Hare Krishna, I'm going to chant something else. And so that's also uh, not something Prabhupada wanted us. And also Prabhupada personally created and gave his life to create an institution. And Prabhupada definitely wanted us to serve that mission. So in terms of our practice, our philosophy, and uh, our loyalty to Prabhupada's institution, uh, those are things that Prabhupada did not want us to change. So what about Shikandi? She is representing the third gender. Actually, no, there is no real third gender. Um, I've discussed this many times. Uh, Shikandi is a masculine word referring to a man. There is sort of a farcical description in the Mahabharata, which I think without question is a later interpolation, as Madhvacharya explains their interpolations. Uh, when Amba threw herself into a sacrificial fire and gave up her life, Amba became Shikandi in the next life. Her last words were Vidhaya Bhishmasya to the killing of Bhishma. Her mind was absolutely absorbed in Bhishma because she wanted to kill him because Bhishma had ruined her life. And so uh, to say that she would take birth as a woman would be would contradict the Bhagavad Gita. And if you look at that whole story about Shikandini, uh, Amba taking birth first as a girl, the whole thing is 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 farcical. Uh, and practically absurd, which that's a whole other topic I can do, but it, it seems like one of the most obvious interpolations uh, in all of the Mahabharata. 
and for many reasons, which I can go over in terms of another time. So uh, Shikandi is a man who uh, marries and who he's just a man. So uh, what do we owe society when we are born? Well, the fact that there's a hospital to be born in, or if there's a, if you use a midwife, uh, the fact that there are places, institutions that train midwives, uh, the fact that your mother and father lived long enough to beget you, uh, and they didn't die before they could, you know, bring you into the mother's womb because there were police in society, there was food in the market, there were, you know, there were schools, there were people that trained their children not to go and kill other people. So, I mean, you could make a very, 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 very long list uh, of all the benefits, social benefits that have to come together even for you to be born. And then, of course, once you're born, to be safely born. Uh, what about chanting with different tunes or melodies? That's, yeah, that's, uh, why not? Okay, so I think that's all the questions. Every time I end a class, I then hear from Nandalila that you didn't answer some questions. So uh, if I didn't answer your questions because I really didn't see it and no one told me about it, but I tried to answer everything I saw. So thank you very much for uh, being with us and I hope you'll be with us again next Sunday. Hare Krishna.